0: We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about metaphors and the importance of metaphors. In spirituality, the language of spirituality is, has to be metaphor. Something that stands by definition outside of our logical minds um, can't be approached directly in terms of describing it, but it can be approached through experience, of course. We can convince ourselves experientially but how do you describe that experience? How do you express it? Well, it has to be in metaphor something that points toward, something that evokes the experience of. Jesus was a master of metaphor. He used metaphor on top of metaphor. Last week you we were talking about, he doesn't exactly mix metaphors, he layers metaphors. He creates a, a tapestry, a quilt of metaphors. And all the metaphors relate to his central metaphor, which is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's his central metaphor for the quality of life, the the level of consciousness, conscious awareness, that is kingdom. Kingdom to Jesus is that level of consciousness, the awareness of the unseen world, superimposed on the seen world, and the ability to hold that all in one embrace. You know, Jesus' metaphors... And the, and the sub metaphors, the, the, uh, you know, illustrating metaphors we talked about, the gardener, right? The, the Hebrew bride and the shepherd and the fisherman and the child. All of these had attributes that it's really important for us to look at because those attributes are trying to explain further what Jesus means by kingdom, how it works in our life, how it's experienced in our life. So we need to look at those metaphors, as we have for the last couple of weeks, and how they relate to kingdom, how they illuminate kingdom. And all three of the ones that we looked at, the gardener, the bride, and the child, have the qualities of here and now, and not yet at the same time. For Jesus' kingdom is both here, now, and not yet at the same time. It's that which is already present in our lives, that which we're experiencing right now, and then, what some people like to call the suddenly, the change, the transformation, something that is out there that is coming, that is anticipated, but never at the expense of being here and now. All three of those, me- of those metaphors illustrate that, that living between heaven and earth, as the Jews understood this life of ours, between the unity of heaven, between the, the individual form and function of earth, requires this unity of things that appear to be opposites. For us, what is now and what is future not yet are opposites. But to Jesus, they're one thing. And he's trying to get that across, how that feels, how that works, how you can experience that in your moments to be able to apprehend the quality of life, the level of consciousness that is this kingdom. And if we focus, overly focus on one side or the other, either the here and now or the not yet, we start to lose kingdom. There is no way that we can stay in kingdom if we're overly focused one way or the other on the physical or on the spiritual, on the here and now, as opposed to the not yet. Any of that over-focus misses the mark, which is the definition of sin, by the way. Sin is missing the mark of this unity, of this balance of these qualities. Have you ever heard the, (laughs) I love this line, you're so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. Have you ever heard that one before? I love that. If we're too focused on heaven, then we're not here. We're not present. We're not practical. You know, maybe we understand theology to the nth degree, but we can't tie our shoes. And it goes the other way as well. If we're so focused, so humanistic, so just everything is about this life, then We're missing that there is something right around the corner that can change everything at any moment. It is that quality of bringing those things together that makes a difference, that creates this quality of life that Jesus calls kingdom. The metaphors are key. The metaphors will guide us. The metaphors will show us where all this goes. I had a friend who asked me, you know, I really don't, people are always talking about spiritual development, but I don't really get that. You know, what really is spiritual development? Well, you could probably go round and round on that one, and everyone would have a different idea. But for me, for my money, and from what I see coming from Jesus, that spiritual development is simply the development of our presence, development of our awareness that there are these two worlds that are occupying the same space, if you will the now and the not yet, the physical and the spiritual if we can hold those together if we have the awareness to see god's spirit unseen spirit infused in everything that we do you know every plant that you water every person that you talk to everything changes your attitude toward life changes your experience of life changes Hope begins to return, gratitude becomes your default position, everything changes when we can move into that place. Spiritual development is, I believe, becoming aware enough, present enough to be able to see that these work hand in glove and to hold them here in one embrace, and to value both of them enough to continue that balance. That takes energy to have that balance to keep that balance in your life. And the metaphors are pointing all this out. The gardener, no control over the plant that grows. All the gardener can do is bring all the elements together. Soil, seed, water, sun, bring it all together. Create the perfect environment, and then he goes home and goes to sleep. And then something happens, unseen and hidden. And when he gets up in the morning and there's that little shoot coming up. The Hebrew bride... Living in that year or two years between the betrothal and the and the actual wedding ceremony that consummates the, the marriage, has no idea when the groom is coming back to take her home. Every day could be the day, always here and now, always not yet. And the child, the child who is so here and now because the child has no choice, but at any moment, any moment, that self-awareness can kick in at the right time in child development and everything changes. Always the quality of now and not yet. The metaphors are trying to get that across to us. We create the environment. We create the conditions, but we have no control over the transformation. No control over the miracle. And we do this as Jesus did it. How is it that we can move forward in this? What did Jesus do? Well, First thing he did was start small. Do you realize that we are three Sundays from Christmas? I mean, that that just kind of came clear to me this week. It's like, oh my gosh, we are three Sundays from Christmas. What can Christmas teach us about ourselves? What can Christmas teach us about this exact point that we are trying to understand about this now and not yetness? About this physical and spiritual connection. You know, we tend to think of Christmas as being all about Jesus, don't we? It's Jesus' birth, Jesus coming down from heaven. But scripture is always pointing to something deeper. Scripture is always pointing us and guiding us to something that is not out there someplace, not historical, not just on a page, but actually is interior, that will guide us where we need to go. That is the whole purpose of scripture, Everything in Scripture has to have that valence, has to have that attribute of being able to guide us someplace deeper. And so we need to look deeper. What is the Christmas story telling us? What's the value there for us in terms of our spiritual development, our ability to apprehend this awareness? Fifty years ago, fifty-five years ago maybe, y'all remember Charlie Brown? I grew up with Charlie Brown. Some of you grew up with Charlie Brown. And the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the Thanksgiving special. And 50 years plus ago, Charlie Brown was lamenting that we have lost the meaning of Christmas. If you remember the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Where is Christmas? What is, you know, it's all this commercial stuff. It's all this and that. 55 years ago, he was saying that. How much more true is it now in terms of what is the meaning of Christmas? How have we missed it. Where are we supposed to be going with this? Where are we supposed to look? And there's that great scene where he says this and uh, Linus is listening, you know, the little kid with the uh, the blanket, and he says, you don't know the meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown? Let me tell you the meaning of Christmas. And all of a sudden the spotlight comes down on him and he reads Luke 2 or recites Luke 2 where we get back to the meaning of Christmas and what it was all about in the beginning. What is this meaning? What is he talking about? What do we think of when we think of the meaning of Christmas? Well, the light came into the world. Our Savior came into the world. It's typically how we were thinking of Christmas, and, that, and that's absolutely true. But the light and the Savior came as an infant, as a helpless child. And not just a helpless child, but an abjectly poor child. Why? What was, All these details in the birth narratives all these details in the gospels and scripture they're there for a reason every detail is there for a reason you know something doesn't survive 2,000 years in copying an oral tradition if it doesn't have a purpose for being there there's a reason for these details why was he lying in a manger why were there just strips of cloth why were they not in the inn why was there no room for them and the inn wasn't an inn but that's a whole other story we'll do that some other time why are these details there? What are they trying to show us? When I was, uh, let me put it this way, when our now 16-year-old was about two, um, we took him on a hike. We all went you know, on this hiking trail behind our home, and uh, Brennan was just in a little stroller, and I was pushing him. And it was such an experience for me that I actually wrote it down. And I want to read this so we can start to zero in on why this Christmas story is so important, why Jesus starting small was so important. I took my two-year-old son on a walk through a nature reserve near our house one Sunday afternoon. Couched way down in the sling of the stroller, he looked small and far away. All I could see of him was the wind ruffling through the fine hair on the top of his head as I alternately watched the landscape and the footpath, making sure I was guiding the wheels over the safest and smoothest route. Moving deeper into the hills, the path narrowed as mustard plants overgrew along the sides, rising chest and neck high, covered with their tiny yellow flowers. I could see the path curving off, disappearing into overgrowth, then reappearing farther down the hill. In the middle distance below us, there were housing tracks, the parking lot, a road alive with traffic, and with the far distant mountains as a backdrop, all the familiar sights and sounds of my world aligned in a comforting glance. The path had grown narrow enough that the stroller was now parting the mustard stalks as we pushed through, and as I looked down at my son, I realized that he had gone unnaturally quiet and still. Still. I could sense his focus and concentration right through the top of his head and looked down the path toward what may have been holding his attention when a sudden thought struck me. I bent way down, almost doubled over, and held my face at the same level as his, continuing to push through what magically had changed from mustard bushes to tall trees with their yellow tops high over my head the whole scene instantly transformed from a narrow footpath on a nearby hill to a mysterious road deep in the forest. We could have been hundreds of miles from the nearest sign of anything that seemed familiar and safe. I could imagine we were traveling a hobbit road through Middle Earth, that horses with armored riders would come thundering around the next curve at any moment, filling the scene with flying clumps of earth, flared nostrils, and the glint of hardened metal. By simply lowering my position, I had left the world with which I was so familiar and comfortable and had entered a new one, the world of my child, a world viewed from only three feet off the ground where even a rutted footpath could hold any promise or possibility. I had been given just a glimpse of whatever it was my boy was seeing in all of its newness and mystery, but it was enough to begin to understand. Lowering our point of view changes everything. Everything looks different from th- 3 feet off the ground, right? Have you ever tried to find something that a child has lost? Did the child did your child when they were small ever lose your remote control and you're trying to find it, you're looking all over the house? You know how you find something that a child has lost? You get down on your knees. And look at their level, and you see all the little places that you missed from four, five feet off the ground, six feet off the ground, and there they are. Right? It's amazing how that changes things. We know it's become a cliche that people get depressed at Christmas time. Why do people get depressed at Christmas time? Well, there's probably lots of reasons for that, but I think the main one is, is that we have encoded Christmas into our psyches and spirits and hearts from a height three feet off the ground. That's where we learned Christmas. But from five and six feet off the ground, it doesn't look the same anymore. And that disparity, trying to recreate what we knew that Christmas was all about when it was so magical and so new, that's the place where the depression sets in. But all we have to do is lower our point of view back down to three feet off the ground and everything changes ever gone back to the house you grew up in after 30 or 40 years what's the universal thing that everybody says when they go back to their child home it looks so small (laughs) I remember it being big well when you're three feet off the ground everything is huge not so much when you go back Jesus started small like every single one of us He started small. Take a look at the way Paul states it at Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the kenosis that we talk about in theology. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus voluntarily became a child, right? And he never stopped being childlike his entire life. Jesus had this quality of being able to see life from three feet off the ground, even as he was processing from six feet off the ground or five feet off the ground. They were shorter back then. But there are more details in the gospel that we talked about. He was lying in a manger. He was abjectly poor. He was not just a helpless infant. He was a poor infant, poor, powerless, invisible to the world, invisible to the authorities of the world, They wouldn't even give him the first glance, let alone the second glance, invisible and hidden. He was what the Hebrews called anavim. And if you've never heard that word before, it's a shame. It's never really been publicized or taught much in Western Christianity. But anavim is a foundational concept in in the Hebrew culture. It comes from the root word to bow down. And so the idea of the anavim is that these are a people who are lowly, they are poor, they're marginalized, they're oppressed, oppressed, but they're also aware of their condition. They're aware of their condition. They're accepting of their condition. They accept the fact that they don't have power. They accept the fact that this is their lot in life. They're not resentful And because they're able to accept this place in life, they realize they can't rely on themselves to get the things they need. They need to be completely reliant on God. God is going to get them through in a way that they can't see how they're going to get through, which makes them a grateful people, a humble people. This is the ideal attitude from a Hebrew point of view. If you look at Psalm 37, we're not going to pull it up right now, but the anavim shall inherit the land is one of the lines from Psalm 37. It won't be translated as anavim. It'll be translated as the humble or the meek, but it's the word. If you look at the actual Hebrew word, it's anav, which is the singular. Anavim is the plural. Matthew 5, Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth. Same idea. Jesus is just mirroring the Psalms in the Sermon on the Mount. The anavim are not necessarily poor materially, but it's a lot easier if you are poor materially. Why did Jesus say it's a lot easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Because kingdom is anavim. That quality that the anavim have is what Jesus calls kingdom. When you are materially wealthy, like all of us are, relatively, everything's relative, but we are, it's going to be a lot harder for us. But... It doesn't have to be that way. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is an Aramaic idiom that means the attitude of poverty even if you're rich. In other words, anavim, grateful, but humble at the same time, realizing that we're all on the same level. This kingdom quality that we're talking about, this consciousness, is the anavim quality. The anavim, consciousness. And Jesus' metaphors of the garden and the bride and the child and the shepherd and the fisherman and the servants, all anavim. Either in actuality, they are that poor, that lowly, or they have the heart of that anavim all pointing to a spiritual truth that we need to grasp, we need to get, if we're going to understand Christmas and if we're going to understand how it is that we can live this life that Jesus is pointing us to. And what truth is that? That who we really are is anavim. Whether we see it that way or not, whether we've bought our own illusions and egoic projections or not, who we really are is anavim. Richard Rohr has a wonderful little blip that he's just quoting from the AA book. Humility and honesty are really the same thing. Humility and honesty are the same thing. A humble person is simply a brutally honest person about the whole truth. You and I came along a few years ago, and we're going to be gone in a few years. The only honest response to life is a humble one. (laughs) Alcoholics Anonymous offers a classic definition of humility. Stark, raving honesty. Do you get what he's going for here? Humility and honesty are the same thing. Honesty about who we are. To be really honest about that. To be aware enough to be honest about who we really are. Aware of the nature of our relationships with God and with each other that God is a provider, and we are the receiver. And with between us and each other, we're no better, but we're no worse. That's humility. The awareness of, the honesty about who we really are, the nature of our relationships. Like the gardener who is powerless to make transformation happen, to make anything grow, no matter how hard he tries, he can't make that plant grow, and he can't make it grow any faster It's just going to, you just have to wait until the harvest time kicks in. But showing up daily to do what needs to be done to keep the environment right for that harvest, for everything that needs to happen, but powerless to make it happen. Do you see the paradox there? Do you see how we have to hold things that seem disparate in one embrace if we're really going to get where Jesus is trying to take us? Our egoic minds hate this. Don't you hate it? Don't you wish you could control it all? Don't you wish you could time it and make things happen on your time schedule? We put up illusions of control all the time to try to take away the sting of uncertainty, of being out of control. So we put all these things up in our mind's eye. We gather wealth and we gather prosperity and we gather prestige and power so that we can feel like we have some control, feel like we have some security over life but we'll never be able to be present to others or to God. We'll never be able to enter kingdom, this quality of life Jesus is talking about, until we realize and accept who we really are. We literally have to be liberated from our projections and our illusions into the truth of who we really are. That is a definition of salvation to a Hebrew, Hebraic mind, spiritual liberation, liberation into the truth of who we really are right here, right now. Take a look at Psalm 30, thirty-one, thirty-one. This is actually the third shortest Psalm in the Bible. You know, you get that one for free. This is the whole Psalm right there. The whole thing we're going to read, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Do you hear the anavim and all of that? Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. What an image. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus in the wilderness. Remember the three temptations? Turn stones into loaves, have power over all the kingdoms, jump down from the parapet of the the, uh, temple and being borne up by angels in front of all the adoring crowds. Our obsessions for relevance and for power and for prestige are everything that the mind wants to try to cover over the fact that we are on a beam. That's who we are. And that's all we will ever be and we'll never be happy until we accept that and live that. That's what kingdom is. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Jesus' entire message, all of contemplative spirituality, is just the way of the anavim, the way to become aware enough, conscious enough to accept who we are and then to live it fully with abandon. Jesus was born anavim. He started small, And he never stopped. He never stopped being exactly who he was. He carried the attitude of the gardener, the child, the servant. He carried complete reliance on his father. It really threw the church for the first 300 years. Actually, it's still throwing us right now. How Jesus, who was supposed to be co-equal in the Trinity, was also always talking about he does nothing of his own initiative, only what he sees the father doing from him. You know, Always talked about himself in subservience to the father because he was on a and he never stopped being on a beam complete reliance on his father even as his fame right as his influence grew even as all of that happened and the crowds increased he was always materially and spiritually poor in spirit He never changed. He never gathered wealth to himself. And he maintained that attitude of poverty, even when he had so much potential to do otherwise. He always operated in gratitude and humility and service. He always had a sense of wonder, a playful sense, a sense of humor. We don't get Aramaic humor from 2,000 years ago, but it's there. It's right there in the Gospels. Jesus could tell a good joke. And he was never a victim of poverty. He was empowered and he was liberated from material obsession at every turn. Jesus started small. Christmas is all about small, hidden beginnings of something that is going to manifest huge, but not at the moment, a small, hidden beginning. Remember when we talked about the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds that goes and buries in the ground. You don't see what's happening down there. Tiny beginning. But when that tree matures, it takes over all the rest of the garden and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Something that has a small, hidden beginning and a huge effect. Or like the leaven that the woman puts in the lump of dough. Leavens the whole lump. Small, hidden beginning huge effect. All of these metaphors that Jesus is using, trying to get this across to us, that even as it remains hidden and unassuming and humble, the effect is disproportionate to the actual attitude of the anavim. If you want to find something hidden by a child, you got to kneel down. Look at things from three feet off the ground. And if you want to find something hidden by a childlike God, you have to do exactly the same thing. You have to kneel down, lower your point of view, see where a childlike, unassuming, playful God puts the things that really matter in life. You're not going to see them from six feet off the ground it's through your mind that is playing games with you, that can't handle the truth. But lower your point of view. Christmas is the story of Jesus' birth, but it's also the story of our rebirth. For us to be reborn is to retell the Christmas story in our own lives, which is what Scripture is all about. It's about us living this Philippians 2, we can rephrase now. We can take a look at it in a different way. For each one of us not to regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. What is it that we're doing when we have these illusions of power? What is it we're doing when we play these games and try to arrogate all this wealth to ourselves? We're trying to grasp some kind of equality with the provider. We want to be our own provider. Like Leonard Sweet said last week, we have a God complex. We want to be the giver, not the receiver but to lower our position, to empty ourselves, as Jesus did, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of the anavim. Just a little bit more that I wrote right after the Brennan story. Being reborn tears us from everything we know and think we understand. It takes us from all the comforting and familiar things we have piled up around ourselves in the effort to feel bounded and held and in control. It seems to require so much of us, so much loss, that we resist as long as we can. But rebirth doesn't take from us anything we actually possess and offers back everything that we already do. If we can find our way not to simply give up and stop resisting, but to truly surrender and take that first step, our rebirth will open the rest of the way to immense new experience full of the adventure and exhilaration of possibilities we didn't even know existed. From the other side of his rebirth, Yeshua looks at us from the standing height of a child, from the kneeling height of a servant at our feet, saying that what he has done we can do and greater things than these. There he is. Way down there, with the wind combing through his hair, beckoning with his broad, blinding smile and speaking with the unmistakable ring of the truth that makes us free. Because in all all our powerlessness, there is one power that we do possess. The power to choose to hitch our strollers to the power greater than ourselves. The only power that can take us where we really want to go. The truth that the way to healing is actually down and not up, a letting go rather than an acquisition, an admission of vulnerability, a lowering of imagined position, is just too frightening to accept as long as we believe we have any power left to defend. You know, it's absolutely ironic that we're being asked by God to lower our point of view to God's point of view. God is always on the throne, way up there, but what is God really asking us to do? Lower our position so that we can see the world through the Father's eyes as God actually sees it from three feet off the ground. Our God starts small, the standing height of a child, the kneeling height of a servant, a hidden God that has huge effects in our life. But we will miss that God until we kneel down ourselves, show up daily to that hidden work, that unassuming work, valuing service when nobody is watching or rewarding, seeing value in the small hidden things of life. I have one more thing I want to read because it's become a tradition here at the Effect that I read this story at Christmas time every year, and it is the quintessential example of an Anavim. And it's also a test of whether I can get through without breaking up, because that's not always easy. It's called Trouble at the Inn. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity Play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year, and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth, most people in the town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally asked to play ball with them. Most often, they'd find a way to keep him off the field. But Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boy chased the younger ones away, it would be always Wally who'd say, can't they stay, they're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year, but the play's director, Mrs. Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered in the town's youth-hide extravaganza of the staffs and the craches of beards and crowns and halos and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Purling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time, Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then came the time when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. "'What do you want?' Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture." We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead, but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper. This is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary and Mary laid her head upon his shoulder and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. while he stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open. His brow creased with concern. <laughs> his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. "'Don't go, Joseph!' Wally cried. "'Bring Mary back!' And Wallace Purling's face grew into a bright smile. "'You can have my room!' gets me every time some people in town thought the pageant had been ruined yet there were others many others who considered it the most christmas of all christmas pageants that they had ever seen the ultimate anavim wally didn't have a choice of who he was if he was developmentally disabled but we do all of us are born just like wally though aren't we With that kind of presence and innocence and connection and just love, Wally and Jesus never grew out of that. We have to learn how to grow back in. That's our task. That's our way to kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it is so hard for us to see you as the child, as a servant. Forgive us for not being able to conjure the imagination, to break through our stereotypes, to see you as you are presenting yourself to us, to see where you are pointing toward this kingdom that you desperately want us to enjoy to experience, to live. Help us to break through. Help us to value lowering our position as much as you do so that we can actually begin to do it, to let go of the things that keep us apart, that keep us above imagine control, and enter into who we really are, completely reliant on you completely able to be honest about who we are and how we relate and to make our choices accordingly. It is absolutely beautiful that you are our unassuming God. Help us to find that quality in ourselves. We love you, Father. Thank you for this Christmas season as we approach it keep us sane through this Christmas season as we approach it. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.